0: That's right! We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome again to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast, I talk to guests who tell me the five things from their life that they would like to put in a time capsule. That's why we called it My Time Capsule, although perhaps we should have called it Their Time Capsule. Never mind. They choose four things that they cherish and would like to preserve, but they also choose one thing that they would like to banish from their life, something they want to bury in the earth and never have to think about again. My guest in this episode is the comedian, author and musician Mitch Ben, who is probably best known for his amazing comedy rock songs, particularly as performed on the BBC satirical comedy The Now Show. Mitch began his career, as many comedians do, at the Edinburgh Festival in 1994 as part of the improvisation group Improverts and quickly established himself as a comedy club headliner as well as The Now Show, on which he was a regular from 1999 to 2016, and BBC Radio 2's It's Been a Bad Week. He's also been on Radio 2's Jammin' and his own shows, Mitch Ben's Crimes Against Music and The Mitch Ben Music Show on the BBC. He was the voice of Elvis on Steve Wright's show's Ask Elvis slot. He appeared in Neil Gaiman's Good Omens and The Sandman audiobooks, as well as The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, performing the part of Zaphod Beeblebrox in a touring production of the show in 2013. In 2020, he was a team member on Only Connect, with Mastermind finalist Dan Adler and Emma Kennedy. Mitch has released eight CDs and the singles Everything Sounds Like Coldplay and I'm Proud of the BBC, which got to number 11 in the Independent Singles Chart. Mitch has written three sci-fi novels, Terror, Terror's World and Terror's War. We're all looking forward to Terror Takes a Holiday because he's knackered. And he writes a weekly column in the new European newspaper. So let's find out the things that Mitch Ben cherishes and the one thing that he loathes. Either way, the things he wants to put in a time capsule.
1: When I was a teenager, Rick and Aid in particular were my rock stars, mm. you know. Um, I used to sort of obsessively follow them and keenly await their new show in much the same way that you're supposed to obsessively follow a band and keenly await their new album Yeah, uh, at that age, you know. They they were absolutely my rock stars, Rick and Aid. They really were extraordinary.
0: Yeah, well, Aid is a fantastic man. Rick was the most extraordinary man. He came to my house once for the weekend... And he was going to turn up on a Saturday morning, and I said, well, do you want me to pick you up from the station? He said, no, no, I'll be all right. I'll walk out. I said, well, I'll meet you there, but, you know, I'll show you a way back to my house that doesn't mean you have to go through the town centre. He said, no, I'll be all right. I said, are you sure? And this was absolutely at the height of the young ones. Right, yeah. Everybody knew who he was, particularly young people. Yeah. And the town centre was packed full of young people, and I thought, well, this is it's going to be mad. You know, he walks through there, he's going to be mobbed. And he said, no, it would be okay. And we walked out of the station, we walked up the road, and nobody took the blindest bit of notice of him. Because you could switch his face off. Then he turned it on. said, I said to him, this is extraordinary. It's <laughs> extraordinary yes. that no one's noticed you. And he said, well, I'm not doing Rick. No, but the thing about Rick was that he was, and the only other
1: person I know who's got this is Christian Bale. <laughs> Rick Rick, Bale and Christian Bale are the only two guys I know who can switch their handsomeness on and off at will. Mm. Christian Bale is precisely as good looking as he wants to be at any given time. If you see him in the big short, he's a real scrawny, bug-eyed weirdo, and he's not under any kind of makeup or anything. He didn't take all the weight off like he did for the machine just to put it on. Like when he's Dick Cheney, he's just him, but he's a scrawny, bug-eyed weirdo. Yeah. And then when he's Bruce Wayne, he's magnificent. Mm. And then when he's Patrick Bateman, he's magnificent but evil. Rick was exactly the same. You know, he was devastatingly handsome when he was Alan Bastard, and like utterly loathsome when he was Richie in Bottom. You know what I mean? It, and yeah. he just could literally turn his handsomeness on and off mm. at will.
0: Yeah, I can do that, but i just keep it off.
1: I've lost the on switch.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, what a lovely way to start by talking about Rick. Yeah. Anyway, on with the format. <laughs> Indeed. We're going to talk about five things you want to put into a time capsule, Mitch. Yeah. Shall I nominate my first thing? Please do.
1: First thing I'd like to put in is my dad's old guitar. My dad's jazz guitar that he acquired, I think, in the early 60s, and was kicking around the house for my entire childhood before I finally, and I can't even really remember why, started tinkering with it when I was about 15. That was odd because I've, you know, been playing guitar professionally now, um, really, in one capacity or another since my early 20s, and yeah, I didn't actually start playing it till I was about 15 years old.
0: Wow, that's amazing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I did do other musical things. I am at the sort of obligatory five or six years of piano lessons when I was a kid, (laughs) and I can sort of, I can play Beatles piano. (laughs) Chord bass, chord bass, you know, I can play Beatles piano now. And then when I was 11 years old, my primary school acquired a double bass, Whence I know not. (laughs) And I was basically, as the biggest kid in school, press-ganged into learning this thing. (laughs) Of course. I was the only kid in the whole school tall enough to play it. So it's like, you, huge child, play this! (laughs) And so I spent the rest of my school days playing double bass in, in various schools' orchestras in Liverpool. But then when I was about 15, I finally started to mess around with these guitars that had been lying around the house for my entire childhood because my mom and dad both played in folk clubs in Liverpool in the 60s. Ah. And I started to teach myself a bit on my dad's old guitar. And then for my 16th birthday, they kind of refurbed it cleaned it up and fixed it and put fresh strings in it, and it became sort of officially my guitar, although it's actually back at my mum's place in Liverpool. I wanted to get something from my dad. My dad died about five years ago. He was an extraordinary man, extraordinary guy. Um, Funniest, cleverest guy I ever met. Voracious reader, which I'm not. We used to live opposite Allerton Library in Liverpool. Mm-hmm. Grew up in a house opposite a library. Mm-hmm. And twice a week, he would go over there and come back with an armload of sort of 500-page tomes. And then literally about three or four days later, he'd be back over there and trade them all in for new ones. Particularly keen on historical fiction. He knew an awful lot about history, but I think it slowly dawned on me that the way he was learning all this was by reading C.S. Forrester <laughs> and Patrick O'Brien. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that was how he was learning all this. Um in the middle of my studies at Edinburgh University, I went to live in Spain for a year uh, as I was doing Spanish and French. Mm-hmm. The place I lived in Spain was right in the, uh, in the south-west of Spain on the Portuguese border, a little town called Badajoz, spelt Badajoz, but it's pronounced Badajoz. And as soon as I mentioned this to my dad that I'd been sent there, that I'd got my placement through, I was going to be sent there, he went, yes, Battle of Badajoz, 1811, longest battle of the Peninsular War. You know, and, that, and, and that was kind of the prison through which he saw
0: everything. And he said things like, and the night before the general was very worried and sat mopping his brow all evening. According to the book I read.
1: (laughs) I've got the same thing, which is... um, I basically have a black belt in digression. Um, (laughs) But it's because I can't really perceive anything as existing in isolation from anything else. My sister, Rachel, always used to have this standard joke that if you ever asked Dad about anything, he'd always begin with the Big Bang. (laughs) Or at the very least, the Industrial Revolution. You couldn't begin to explain the Cubist movement of the 1930s, (laughs) without at the very least going back as far as Homer, you know. (laughs) And and I've kind of got the same thing. It's, you know, everybody who knows me sort of tenses up if anybody asks me a question. (laughs) And I've absolutely got that from the old man. We're so alike in so many ways. Every year I look and sound a little bit more like him as well. It's it's very weird.
0: What did he do, your dad?
1: Well, this is the thing. For all of my childhood, he was in-house PR at Littlewoods in Liverpool the pools-slash-catalogue-slash-department-store company. Yeah. And then when I was, I'm guessing, sort of about seven or eight years old, he jumped ship and joined a little sort of independent PR company. He went solo, as it were, wanted the business for himself. And then that was kind of it until he sort of... till he retired, really. Mm. He had various sort of health issues in, in sort of late middle age. And in late middle age, when he actually... He, t- he took slightly early retirement. He finally... Got his degree and he did a history and fine art degree when he was in his sixties, in his late sixties, and finally got his, uh, his grad photo up on the shelves along with, with all my cousins. It's a damn shame that I'm not a big enough deal to go on. Who do you think you are? Cause I've got all kinds of stories
0: to tell. Um, <laughs> I'll have a word.
1: <laughs> I only ever knew my one grandparent, my mum's mum, who was already nearly seventy when I was born, but then didn't die till I was like twenty four. She lived to a ripe old, ripe old age. Mm. Her husband, my Grandfather Johnny McClode, which is where I got my whole Scottish side from, about which I'm sort of getting ever more interested. Mm. He died not long before I was born. He'd only just gone. My dad's mom died just before they got married. They got married in 63. She died in 62. But my dad's dad was killed in the Blitz. He was a fireman. So my dad never really knew his own dad. He died by the time my dad was three. He never really knew him. And I think that's often something which my generation and maybe the generation slightly before me has been sort of colored by or or informed by or inflected by the fact that a lot of us were raised by dads who didn't have dads of their own. They were either away a lot at the front or never came back from the front or like my dad's dad weren't in the army and got killed anyway. Mm. So that was the thing I wanted to put in. I wanted to put in something to do with my guitar playing because that was where the guitar playing for me began when I was like 15, 16 years old. And I learned guitar basically by I think what's the best way to learn guitar, certainly rock guitars, to have friends who play better than you. (laughs) So a big shout out now if he's listening to my pal Billy Murray in North Carolina who's one of the few school friends I'm still in constant touch with, and he lives in North Carolina Mm. but that's the information age for for you of which more in a moment. Um, (laughs) And another pal called Ian Corlett with whom I recently made contact again and another other pal of theirs called Dave Owen, um, who were like the three best guitar players in our school, and kind of took me under their guitar playing wing mm. and showed me the ropes to the point where by the time I got to university, I was actually quite handy on the thing and uh, ready to start putting bands
0: together. So a lot of guitarists say the meeting up with somebody who's a better guitarist than you is the thing that spurs you on. A friend of mine who sadly died a year ago of um, COVID, Andy Gill, who was um, the guitarist in the Gang of Four. Oh, yeah. He told me, that another friend of mine, a fellow called Sean Lyons, he described sitting at Sean's knees as a boy at school and just watching him play guitar and thinking, oh, my God, imagine being able to play guitar like that.
1: Yeah, and if you're really lucky, the guy in question when you say, how do you do that, will then show you.
0: Absolutely. My son is a guitarist, and now him working out how to play Blackbird and then Sean saying to him, do you know what? If you basically hold that chord you don't have to move your fingers about hardly at all. And my son went, wow, that's brilliant. Where did you learn that? He said, well, uh, I learned it from Andy Summers.
1: That's a good name to drop. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was a big fan of the police, actually. Um, I was at school with a guy called Evan Harris, and Evan then became a Liberal Democrat MP for a number of years and then became the legal guy for Hugh Grant's hacked-off thing. Ah. With the result that, I occasionally get invited to some of their do's. And in particular, I was invited to their Christmas party a few years ago and felt like such a sore thumb, you know what I mean? Because <laughs> the only people there who weren't like massively famous were people were like innocent bystanders who for one reason or another had fallen foul of the tablet pressure. And I was feeling, oh my God, I'm doing that. And then Sting and Trudy Styler turned up and I'm like, oh Christ. <laughs> Sting was the nicest guy at the party. Now, I have never read a kind word about Sting right? Every word you ever read about Sting is about what a wanker he is, you know what I mean? About what this uptight, pompous, self-satisfied, smug, aloof dick mm. Sting, that's all you will ever read about him. And he was utterly charming, and spent a good long while talking with me about everything. The thing is, I'd been a big Police fan when they came out. They were probably the first band I was really into in my own right, because they kind of broke when I was like eight or nine years old. So previous to that, i have been listening to like my mum's Bob Dylan and Beatles records and that, you know. <laughs> but The Police were like the first band I kind of felt I got into under my own steam, you know, when I was about nine. Yeah. And then they they lasted till I was about 16.
0: What's your favourite Police song?
1: Oh, my God, single favourite. Can you really pick that? <sighs> Message in a Bottle, because it's just so damn hard to play It's those extended ninth chords. I've only got these stupid little fat fingers and they've all got those extended ninth chords that Andy Summers and Lindsay Buckingham were so fond of.
0: There you are, the extended chord that Andy Summers showed my friend Sean.
1: Yeah, I can play Message in a Bottle but I need about 10 minutes off afterwards (laughs) when my left hand
0: gets better. So that's brilliant. We will definitely put your first guitar into the time capsule and keep it safe for you. So what's your second item?
1: Uh, My second item is, again, more for what it represents than for what it is. I'll put put, put my iPad in. Oh, yeah. Just because of the extraordinary changes in the way creators and their audience have gotten so much closer together in the last well, really in the last 10 years. I mean it's made it's made it possible for me to keep my stuff together at all this last 12 months. I've actually been okay in lockdown uh in a way that a lot of very good friends of mine really haven't been mm-hmm. and uh, this is not due to any kind of great skill or judgment on my part or foresight on my <laughs> part it's just luck it just so happens that i've been moving more and more of what i do online for like the past 3 or 4 years to the point where when it all went away i was still very busy mm-hmm. and i was still doing things and getting paid for some of the things that i was doing and and you know i've i've had friends who we're entirely dependent on their income from livestock. And I honestly don't know what they've been eating for the past 12 months. I think, I think it's been really, really desperate times in our industry, but it's extraordinary what it enables you to do. You know, I can make videos in my shed now that actually, as recently as 10, 15 years ago, you would have needed a whole pro studio to do. And and the trouble is, there was actually a rather beautiful period where the industry hadn't quite figured that out yet. I would like, you know, there were a couple of times I did music for adverts or music for commercial videos or something and build way over the odds because (laughs) I could get it to sound like I'd been in a pro studio for two days with a bunch of musicians when it was me with my iMac in my spare room for an afternoon. The trouble is, after a couple of years, the industry got wind of the fact that that's what it was. But for example, I mean, I've just... The day we're recording this is the day after I finally got my third book in my science fiction trilogy out, which has taken me seven years to do. Busy. You know, I'd always wanted to write books and I'd always wanted to write science fiction books. And if anything, that was far more kind of, far more of a cherished boyhood ambition than any of the things I've actually ended up doing. <laughs> uh, I don't, I don't know many stand-up comedians who are pursuing their boyhood ambition. Most people doing stand-up seem to have gotten sidetracked into it while they were trying to do other things while they try trying to be proper actors or while they are trying to be proper musicians or trying to be, you know, they just seemed to have gotten sidetracked. And that's very much how it happened to me back in the 90s, you know. I was sort of sloshing around trying to decide what it to it do. And then I found myself doing more and more stand-up and then it just became, oh, I guess this is what I do then, you know. And then hmm. it kind of became my... Prefer- and, you know, it's, it's good because it's enabled me to spin it off into all manner of other directions. But something I had always wanted to do was, was write science fiction books. And I did get commissioned to write a couple of science fiction books uh, by a major-ish publisher about 10 years ago. And and they really wanted it to be a trilogy. The contract was for the first two books, and I wrote the first two books. The first one, Terror, came out in 2013. second one, Terror's World, came out in 2014. And then they didn't renew it. They didn't renew the deal, which left me in this... Really bizarrely up in the air situation, you know, because you're not going to get anybody to reprint two books in order, just in order to print the third, you know, and finally about two years ago, I thought, right, screw it. I'm just going to write book three in the trilogy and then see if I can figure out what to do with it. And my girlfriend, Leslie, who is amazing, actually said to me, you know, you're just going to have to get over yourself and put this thing out yourself. And I was very fortunate. Again, I'm, I'm a lucky son of a bitch in many respects. I really am, but, um, Leslie, she said, right, I'm going to look into how you would do this if you were going to put it out yourself. And what we discovered is that it's a completely different industry to what it was just a few years ago. You can now put a book out yourself. And if you take a bit of time and spend a little bit of money, you can basically make it so that the experience for the buyer and the reader is almost entirely indistinguishable from the experience of buying a book put out by a a major publisher, mm-hmm. you know, and and literally yesterday I finally got this this third book out, which I've been trying to find a way out into the world for for nearly seven years. So <laughs> it is extraordinary the way it's changed things. I mean, you know, what we're doing right now, this very art form didn't exist. 15 years. Well, this is quite interesting. One of the funny things about the word podcast is as soon as the word was in common usage, it was anachronistic because it refers to something which nobody uses anymore, no. which is the iPod. <laughs> so podcast, weirdly, that word was anachronistic as soon as it was in common use, or rather even before it was in common use. <laughs> um, and that's the other thing is it's eliminated so many of... What used to be the either officially or self-appointed gatekeepers between the creators and the audience, the people who could tell you what you could or couldn't do? I mean, mm-hmm. as you and I know, you know our, both our backgrounds are in radio comedy, and radio comedy is great, but at any given time, there are literally two people deciding what does or doesn't get on as regards radio comedy. Because there's really only one actual legit station in the world that does radio comedy, and that's Radio Four. Radio Two dallies with it occasionally, but seems to never really be sure whether or not it wants to do Mm. it. I don't even know whether they're doing comedy on two or not at the moment. So it's really on four. And and there are like two or three people in this decision making chain. And if one of them doesn't like your idea, it's not happening. No. It's just not happening. And that has been absolutely the case until about 10 years ago. And now, of course, everybody, because everybody is now a podcaster. I read somebody the <laughs> other day called podcasting the, the fat white guys only fans, which just absolutely destroyed me. I can't remember who said that. And again, just, just the stuff you can do now is. It's extraordinary. I mean, you know, sometimes, you know, because in many respects, living in the future as we now do, because I'm sorry, but the year 2021 is the future, isn't it? <laughs> you know, if, if you grew up watching as much dystopian science fiction as I did, then the year 2021 is in the future. Um, and in many respects, living in the future is a bit of a letdown. You know, there are no jetpacks, there are no flying cars, <laughs> there are no androids, we're not living there are no moon bases but then you look at your iphone and you think yeah but i mean this is just nuts this is insane i mean the 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 sheer level of functionality you have just from having that thing in your pocket in any given time to reproduce that as recently as you know as as the early noughties, you would have been had to driving round in a van full of equipment with two other guys to help you operate it all. You know, it's, it's, it's just the stuff
0: you can do just right now. I mean, all I want now, Mitch, is a stun phaser.
1: <laughs> well, you can get a taser from somewhere, I suppose. But, but, but it's, <laughs> you almost got those. It has brought with it, as we know, a whole new generation of pitfalls and hazards. But everything does. Mm. In every field of human interaction, there's been somebody being a jerk. In every field of human creativity, there's been people putting it to toxic and and, and horrendous uses. Mm. And it is, in some respects, more pernicious because it comes right into your house. But I do find myself sometimes just... Again for somebody who grew up sort of obsessed with the future and the potential of the future the stuff that we didn't see coming is often the most surprising just and the neatness and smallness and the the immediate availability and the the intuitiveness of technology that's the other thing is you can you can hand an 18 month old kid an iPad and they will figure it out within a couple of minutes of being handed it it's so intuitive now um computers have become like cars which is the vast majority of people using them have no idea how they work and nor do they need to there's the guy who knows what's going on under the hood but most. People, but then again, you know, my car's a hybrid now my car's almost a computer on wheels so yeah, I, I, I want to put the iPad in there just because it, it represents all the, the incredible things that you can
0: do just for yourself yeah, well, just for you I will put your iPad into the time capsule <laughs> so what's your third thing, Mitch? Okay, it's time for a short break now for some adverts, hopefully. We'll be back very soon. So, as they say on all those channels where they're terrified that the ad break will lose the viewers, don't go hopping. Whatever that means.
1: Cool Fact
0: 20% off your first system. Welcome back. No hopping, I hope. Maybe a little bit of skipping. Right, let's get back to Mitch Ben and find out what else he'd like to put in his time capsule.
1: Number three uh, is my 50th birthday present from my girlfriend Leslie I turned 50 just before it all locked down, the beginning of last year. So I was 51 in January. Although, as we were saying earlier on, I think we should all get a do-over. I think we should all be docked 12 months off our age for the year that we didn't get. Yeah. But it was this beautiful thing which he organised completely in secret. Uh And it's, My entire extended family, each holding up a letter and it spells happy 50th birthday, Mitch. So it's my mum, my ex-wife who lives across the street with a new partner and with whom I still get on brilliantly and her mum and my two kids and... Leslie and my sister-in-law and her husband, who's an old college buddy of mine, who they got together through us and um, and their little boy. And it's, so it's like a sort of photo montage of everybody holding up a letter singing. And it's a beautiful thing anyway, but what I wanted to include it for is to symbolize family, but not just the importance of family, but the mutability of family. And the fact that my family now is this big complex jumbled arrangement mm. and i love it it's good it works it's not what you have in mind because nobody gets married in the expectation that it's not going to work nobody gets married i think you know not even in california i don't think people <laughs> get married yeah. believing that you're gonna split up and certainly you know we we were together a long time and we were married for 15 years before we broke up and we've been together for 20 basically and it was amicable and it was not fun it was hard but it was probably the right thing to do because we are all still pals and my kids i can tell Absolutely love it when we all get together in this big mad gang because they live across the street. So my kids are to and from the two houses. Basically, they're to and from my place and their mum's place. They come and stay here whenever they can. And you know, they, they, they live mainly full time with their mom, but they're, they're over here at least, you know, one night a week over here for a couple of new and, and you know, and I'll take the little one to and from school as and when I'm available. And you know, we, we all have christmas together and we all have special days you know you know we, we, we all get together as a big gang whenever possible um and family is a wonderful thing but it's families can take many shapes and forms you know the blood somewhat chills when you hear the phrase family values because it almost never means that family values just means picking on single mothers and hating on queers. That's what it usually means. You know what I mean? Let's be honest. When people say family values, it's usually a term they are using in an exclusionary sense. Mm. So it's not just that families come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. It's that families can change shape and stay family. And I'm I'm quite proud of that. Specifically, I'm proud of me and my ex-wife. I'm proud of Clara and I. I think we've been very grown up about this. And I think everybody has benefited from that. We could have been far bigger assholes about it than we were if we'd wanted to be, you know. But we just thought there's way more important things at play here than some kind of, I don't know, fleeting bitter sense of vindication that you might get you know what i mean
0: (laughs) yeah i'm right you're wrong
1: yeah yeah there's 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 way more important things at stake here And, and she's been incredibly grown up and sensible and patient about it and i like to think i have too and and we're in this situation i like to say it's a total bloody sitcom you know but it works. It's a complete sitcom. I'm living over the street for my ex-wife and a good looking Portuguese boyfriend. You know, I'm I'm living in a bloody sitcom.
0: Where's John Alderton?
1: Literally, literally, yeah. This is it. You know, I feel like I'm being played by, I don't know, Richard Bryson, in an early seventies BBC sitcom or something. But but the thing is, it's it's this big sort of ramshackle arrangement but it's just held together by the fact that everybody cares about everybody else and the one thing I am really looking forward to as regards lockdown ending properly is I've hardly seen my mum all year Mm. You know, My dad, as I mentioned earlier on, has been gone for nearly five years now. But my mum has been kind of on her own because she's up in Liverpool and she's kind of militantly scoused my mum. For all that she was actually born in Inverness, she's actually <laughs> militantly scoused. My mum had turned down half the Beatles by the time she was 18. <laughs> uh, because she was at primary school with Ringo in a primary school called St Silas. And Ringo had a mad crush on my mum and used to follow her around the playground. And she's actually mentioned in Hunter Davis's book... <laughs> There's an interview with a a girl called Mary Maguire, who was Ringo's babysitter when he was little. And one of the paragraphs ends with the words, Once he brought his girlfriend to meet me and insisted her name was Gelatine. That's my mum. Her name her name was Geraldine and Tiny Ringo couldn't pronounce it. So yeah. But um later on in the 50s, she was briefly going out with Eric Griffiths who's one of the other quarrymen one of the quarrymen who didn't subsequently become a Beatle was Eric Griffiths. And apparently at a quarrymen gig, um, Lennon got a bit drunk and leery with her and she told him to naff off. <laughs> so by the time my mum was 18, she'd knocked back half the Beatles, which I think is kind of
0: impressive. Well, it's probably a good thing you've got the right DNA because you've <laughs> you've certainly written better songs than Sean Lennon. <laughs>
1: Although those those sons of the great and good, I think they're often in a, in a really unenviable position. Although having said that, I've become decent pals with Duncan Jones, David Bowie's son, and he's a brilliant guy and is absolutely forging his own way to the point now where, you know, he's made a lot of great movies and written a lot of great comic books and people now have entire discussions of Duncan and who his dad was never comes up. He seems to have survived the, the son of the great and good thing mm. better than most. So that's yeah. yeah. So yeah, something I'd like to put in is that photo.
0: Sounds a lovely photograph. Is it's beautiful. Is every picture of every person taken individually? Yes,
1: yes, and then put together into one big frame and sort of a montage. Oh,
0: brilliant! And they're each holding up a cardboard
1: letter that spells out "Happy 50th Birthday, Mitch." And she did it completely in secret. I had no idea she was getting it done until this. I unwrapped it at the 50th birthday party and came over all a bit teary, as you can imagine.
0: So <laughs> I, had to put that in. I don't blame you. It's a lovely thing. <laughs> I'll make sure it's very safe. I'll give it its own wall. <laughs> so let's move on to item number four.
1: Item number four is a thing I bought in a. A shop in Edinburgh called Mr. Woods Fossils in the Grass Market in Edinburgh. I bought it about five or six years ago. Mm-hmm. What it is, is it's a little pendant. Have I got it here? I don't even know if I've got it here. Oh, I can't find it. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> yeah, there it is. I'll show it to you. I mean, this will mean nothing to the folks at home, but might as well be. It's uh, an ammonite.
0: Yes, beautiful.
1: It's a fossilised seashell. It's 800
0: million years old. Happy birthday.
1: Yeah, exactly. Happy birthday, ammonite. And I bought it just because I thought it looked beautiful and I wear it around my neck occasionally. But I realized that it had acquired a sort of little symbolic thing that it occupies, in much the same way that people who follow religious faith will have the symbol of their religious faith hanging around their neck. This is not the symbol of my faith. It's the evidence for my position. (laughs) It's 800 million years old. It is... Tangible evidence that the earth is not 6,000 years old. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's, it's, and I like the idea that because something I've always been quite, well, increasingly passionate about, it was started off as sort of common garden skepticism, as in, you know, the, The evidentiary approach to life, not specifically kind of atheist or anti religion or anything, although you inevitably come into conflict with that. It's just inevitable. Yeah. But just taking the the evidentiary approach to things and follow the facts, base your beliefs on the facts rather than basing your facts on your beliefs. But the thing is, this has spilled over into all aspects of everything. And I really pine for the days one i used to get into lengthy arguments on twitter with fundamentalist religious loonies <laughs> rather than political loonies because Mm -hmm. ultimately in this country, the fund you know, it's not so much in the States. In the States, the religious fundamentalist loonies can actually do quite a lot of practical damage to people's quality of life, but not so much here. Let's be honest. This is a far more laid-back country in terms of all that. But unfortunately, the political loonies are out in force Mm -hmm. and they're making an extraordinary mess of everything I've ever held dear. And this is a point that I keep coming back to. It's, you know, it's a subtext in all my books. I keep coming back to it in my newspaper column. I've got a column in the New European newspaper. I keep going back to that. I keep coming back to it in my stand-up and all my writings, which is that the divide now is no longer between left and right. The divide is not even between rich and poor or North and South. The divide now is between fantasy and reality. Mm -hmm. It's between people who can actually discern and address what's really going on and people who prefer instead to wrap themselves in comforting but ultimately illusory beliefs. (laughs) And fantasy has been winning in a big way. For most of the last decade and understandably so, because fantasy is always going to be an easier sell than reality. That's an easier ticket to sell, isn't it? You yeah. know, everything you already think is true and everything becomes true. If you just believe it hard enough, that's always going to be an easier sell than actually, you know, things are the way they are. And there are some uncomfortable truths that we have to confront in due course. Boo. Yeah. You know, nobody wants to hear that shit. Um, and, and we've seen fantasy and, delusion take root in so many aspects of public life to the point now where you see things like, well, I mean, just what's happening politically at the moment with this bill, which, as far as anybody can tell, is going to outlaw any form of political protest in this country. The BBC is being, you know, run by people ever more closely affiliated to the Tory party. They just cancelled one of the few satirical TV shows on. They? They're talking about putting somebody like Paul Dacre in charge of Ofcom. And this is all because for the past five years, this country has been governed according to a massive, massive lie, which is that we can get out of Europe and everything will be better. Mm -hmm. Now we can get out of Europe, but everything was not going to be better. A lot of things are going to be worse. And that was always the case, but it's become unsayable. It's become unspeakable. That truth has become out of bounds, that we have made a massive, massive mistake in doing this, and it's going to screw an awful lot of things up. That has just become unsayable. So rather than that, all the opportunities people are going to have to say are being closed down.
0: Not here. Yeah, not here. Nobody ever talked about how much the rest of Europe would hate us as a result of it. It's almost like, when well, we're not going to play with your ball. I wouldn't blame them for being absolutely
1: sick of the sight of us because we've been massively complicating their lives for five years and this is absolutely none of their doing. We haven't done ourselves any good in terms of credibility. You no, know.
0: We... they go, yeah, as if we're going to believe anything you say.
1: <laughs> you know, the analogy I keep using is Hal from 2001, you know, when Hal the supercomputer goes mad and starts trying to murder the crew. Mm. And then in the sequel, 2010, for which Andy Somers did some of the music, <laughs> uh, in the sequel, 2010... They salvage Hal and realise that the reason he went mad is he was given two irreconcilably conflicting sets of mission parameters, and this drove him mad. He went killing and that's literally where this country is. This country is literally, politically speaking, insane because it's based around... An insoluble conundrum, you know, vote leave won the referendum in 2016 by promising the impossible and then pledged to deliver the impossible and seemed to have forgotten that the thing about the impossible is that it's impossible. That's why they call it impossible. And, and, you know, and it was on the same both sides. You know, I mean, if anything, over the last few years, I've been getting far more grief from hard left people on Twitter than I have been on hard right because. I genuinely think that left and right are obsolete terms. And I think um the whole Jeremy Corbyn thing was a complete clown car and was the progressive movement wasting five years chasing its own tail. But, you know, every time I say anything about the government now, I immediately get descended upon by... Corbyn'sologist giving it. Oh, well, uh, I bet you're sorry. You're, you're, you you told I've lots of Jeremy Corbyn now, aren't you? But you <laughs> sorry. You wrote that rude song about Jeremy Corbyn now, aren't you? Mm-hmm. This is all your fault. This is all your fault. And they say, yeah, that's why Boris has got an 80 seat majority. Cause I wrote a song about Jeremy Corbyn two years ago. That's literally why. Or we could say, well, why was there an election in 2019? It's because, you know, Corbyn and his fawning acolytes were vain and stupid enough to believe that it's worth contesting an election when you're polling at 16%. (laughs) Because they they, they had totally isolated themselves from reality. Again, you know, part of the trouble is they did better than expected in 2017, but they still lost. And rather than thinking, why did we lose? They decided, well, we really won. And it's like, no, you didn't really win because nearly winning is a subset of losing.
0: Mm. Now, it's interesting, Mitch, because we've got two items left. One is something that you treasure and you want to put in there to remind you of happy times. <laughs> and, and another yeah. is something that you absolutely loathe and would like to get rid of in your life. And it seems to me that your lovely fossil yeah. somewhat reminds you of something that you would want to get rid of totally,
1: <laughs> it reminds me of something which is important, which is banging the drum for reality whenever possible. Mm. And this is something which is quite dear to my heart: is is banging the drum. It's funny because he didn't actually say it, but there's a line that Jared Harris's character says in the last episode of Chernobyl, the miniseries, mm-hmm. which is one of the most unbelievably brutal bits of TV ever made and apparently this was largely made up by the screenwriter Craig Mazin The Valerie Lerisoff the character he plays doesn't actually say it but it's this magnificent line which people keep quoting now which is that every lie we tell incurs a debt to the truth and sooner or later that debt will be paid and it's true you you can't evade reality forever. And the longer you evade it, the worse it is when it catches up to you.
0: I woke up this morning with a tweet in my mind. (laughs) And I've resisted it ever since.
1: Yeah, yeah, I know. Well, this is it. Well, you want to see my drafts folder at any given time. If I ever accidentally hit the send all button in my Twitter drafts folder, I'll start a war. I mean, (laughs) literally, there's, there's stuff in there which no one must ever see, but... But, yeah, it's, it's a beloved thing, but it's an important thing, you know, is uh, yeah. banging the drum for reality. And, and you know, you, you can't live your life according to comforting lies. You just can't. It doesn't work. It will bite you in the ass eventually, you
0: know. Okay. Well, I shall put in that yeah. 800 million-year-old... Ammonite. 800 million?
1: Yes, 800 million years old, yes.
0: Fantastic, isn't it? I know, it's gorgeous. I took my grandchildren to the fossil coast, you know. Dorset. Yeah, down in Dorset a couple of years ago. And we went to look for fossils. And of course, me being indulgent granddad, I thought, well, they'll never find any. (laughs) So I went to the fossil shop and bought a lot. Yes. And then I sort of hid them around on the beach. (laughs) And almost from the point of the car park, as we walked on the beach, my grandson went, what's that? And there was this rock that had the most beautiful, perfectly formed ammonite on it.
1: Oh, wonderful. That's
0: amazing. It was amazing. Yeah. It's an extraordinary thing to think that he found that thing that has been lying unnoticed for, (laughs) as you say, 800 million years. 800 million years. Yeah. Amazing.
1: That's amazing.
0: So yes, I shall definitely put that into the time capsule and we will move on to the thing that you are going to reject from your life. All
1: right, I have a bit of difficulty fitting this one in. Uh, My body. (laughs) My my body, or rather specifically, my relationship with my body, which has been utterly toxic for as long as I can remember. I do not get on with my own body at all. It's been, you know, it's been the the, the bane of my life. I've been fat on and off as long as I remember. Lockdown has not helped in that regard. I did take an absolute... Almost, I think a metric ton of weight off about 10 years ago and got down to actually slightly scarily thin for a little while. And then I've been up and down ever since. I go through phases of being fitter than others. I go through phases of just complete negation and denial and pretending that I don't exist from the neck down. I spent most of my, (laughs) I spent most of my twenties and thirties wearing black and it wasn't me, you know, trying to be cool. And it wasn't me trying to be mysterious, and it wasn't me trying to be Neil Gaiman. <laughs> it was, it was the basically, it was a complete negation thing. Is that I just didn't want to consider my own existence from the neck mm-hmm. downwards. It's like I wanted to be a being of pure intellect and only exist from the neck up. Before it really belatedly dawned on me when I got to my forties that the trouble is. If the stuff from your neck downwards packs in, it takes the stuff from your neck upwards with it. (laughs) Um, And you can't completely ignore it. But it's weird. I find myself kind of in awe of people who do porn. (laughs) I find myself in awe of anybody who can be that confident in their own attractiveness Mm. that they would literally present themselves as an object of desire. (laughs) You know, I can't imagine what that must feel like in your head rather than just wanting to swathe it in as many amorphous layers of clothing as possible. And if at all, not taking it out of the house unless you really have to. <laughs> you know, I, I can't, I can't really fathom what that must be like. And it is, you know, it's something that I've tried to address many, many times. I think it needs to be addressed at a more fundamental level than I've ever really managed it. And you know i'm fifty one years old now, and you'll think to yourself, "Well, is it really worth it?" And I think, "Well, yes, it is really worth it because you know there might there might be another thirty years of this shit, and it'd be good to be able to move for at least some of it uh and <laughs> it is you know an occasion of sort of everlasting regret for me that I will never know what it's like to be young and fit. Mm. I can manage." not bad shape for my age and that's really all that's available to me now i will never know what young and fit feels like because i wasn't Mm. um and i think that's also one of the reasons why almost uniquely among fat comics i don't go on about it i don't crack self-deprecating fat jokes because i don't find it remotely funny and I think the difference between me and a lot of fat, particularly male fat comics, is that I was a fat kid. I think a lot of fat male comics were skinny kids who drank 12 pints a night for the whole of their 20s. And for them, it's kind of a joke that they got fat. You know what I mean? Hey, look what happened to me. Hey, you know what I mean? And it's like, no, it's not, mm. you know. and And so I won't do that. I wouldn't feel comfortable doing that. And it's not. A censorious thing, it's just I wouldn't feel comfortable doing it. So it's, it's yeah, if I could consign anything to the dustbin of time, it would be my own relationship with my body. I would very much like to get rid of it and have a new one, please. Not body. No. I mean, well, actually, if that were surgically available, I would consider it. But I don't necessarily <laughs> want to get rid of my body and replace it with a new one. I would like to get rid of my relationship with it and replace it with a an, an altogether less toxic and more cooperative one.
0: Yes, that seems fair. Yes. Yeah. That seems fair. I don't think it's fair to be talking about actually having a transplant because then you're really talking about, no. well, whose body would you want?
1: Well, quite frankly, and what happened to them?
0: Yes. <laughs> and, and do they get your body?
1: Oh, God, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. No, suddenly,
0: look at Brad Pitt. Oh, he's put a few pounds on, hasn't he?
1: <laughs> I don't think Brad's is available. <laughs> If it is, I couldn't afford it. That was one of those genuinely sort of, you know, one of the few moments you ever question your sexuality. I remember years ago, uh, Clara and I went to see Troy, the Trojan War movie with Brad and Brian Cox and Eric Banner and everything. And there's a scene where Brad, as Achilles, staggers back into his tent after a battle and just strips his armour off. And I swear I heard every man in the audience go, oh, for fuck's sake. (laughs) (laughs) The fuck am I supposed to do now? Look at the state of that for Christ's sake. You know, that's me never taking my shirt off again as long as I live. You know, here's everything you'll never be. You know, um, but yeah, so if anything, I would like to consign to the dustbin of history, then it's my own relationship with my body. And, uh, you know, time's not up yet. Maybe there's still time for me to sort it out, but it would be, it would be nice for me to do so I and mean, maybe set myself the deadline of trying to get in shape for next year's. That gives me like 15 months. See, I say I've done the 0 to 5K. It is extraordinary. I've done the 0 to 5K and then the 5 to 10. And it is extraordinary how quickly you find yourself doing stuff you didn't think you could do. Mm. I think I need to take a bit of weight off first, before I do that. So I think if I start trying to run with all this, I'm just going to damage myself. So I need to take a bit of weight off first.
0: There you are. You see, the time capsule is already having an effect. Yeah, yeah. You're changing a relationship with your body as we talk. It's an amazing thing. (laughs) Well, Mitch, it's been really, really good fun talking to you.
1: It's been wonderful. It's been wonderful. And thanks again for everything you've done over the years. (laughs) Specifically the heaps. (laughs) If you ever get the heaps back together and you can't persuade Angus, then, you know, tag me in.
0: (laughs) Well, you sing better than him. (laughs) you have been listening to my time capsule with me mike fenton stevens and my guest mitch ben i hope you enjoyed it if you did please tell your friends and please subscribe to this podcast for all new episodes as they become available My Time Capsule is available on all major podcast players and some pretty minor ones as well. You can keep up to date on what's going on and who's coming on My Time Capsule by following us on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. And you can also listen to the theme tune by Pass the Peas music anytime you like on Spotify. This was a cast-off production for Acast. The producer was John Fenton-Stevens. We'll be back with more guests soon, but in the meantime, can I recommend one particular song by Mitch? It's I'm Proud of the BBC, which he recorded a few years ago, and it lists all the programmes that he loves that the BBC have made over the years. The list is quite amazing. For anyone not in Britain, listen with envy. To be honest... I also like it because I've been in a couple of the shows he mentions. You see, in the end, it's all about me. Sorry. Bye.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more.